welcome back to the program. Whenever there's a list of the greatest and most profound inventions of all times, we almost always hear, among other things, about air conditioning, the internal combustion engine, and the electric light. The last one, electric light, has seen to it that vast tracts of the human population have never had to experience anything like total darkness. What impact, though, has that had? As technology moves so much more rapidly than evolutionary biology, how has this impacted our species? We've all seen the aerial views of the world at night. Vast population centers stretching for hundreds of miles, all brightly lit, as our migration to cities continues to create a nighttime culture that's very different from what our ancestors experienced. That's the world that my guest Paul Bogard takes us into in his new book, The End of Night. Paul Bogard teaches creative nonfiction at James Madison University. He's the author of the anthology, Let There Be Night. It is my pleasure to welcome Paul Bogard here to talk about the end of night, searching for natural darkness in an age of artificial light. Paul Bogard, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Great to have you here. Certainly, if we look at it from the point of view of evolutionary biology, man was really never intended to be, never started out to be, a kind of night creature as we have often become. No, it's really true, and I think uh, this issue comes up a lot when I'm talking with folks about um, the impacts on ecology, the impacts on human health, just the idea that all life on Earth evolved in bright days and dark nights, and we need both for optimal health. Have we had electricity and electric light with us now, though, long enough that we have adjusted fully to it? Not at all. Uh, in fact, I think uh, we've really just had uh, electrolyte, electric light with us uh, only a brief time in, if, if in uh, evolutionary terms, certainly. And I think um, the effects that we're finding now um, are, are something that we really want to think about. Um, I've been told by researchers at Harvard that they equate what's happening to uh, an enormous ongoing experiment on ourselves and what we're finding is that we're affecting our physical health in three primary ways. Um, we're disrupting our sleep, and uh, sleep disorders now are tied to every major disease. We're confusing our circadian rhythms, those uh, internal rhythms that uh, keep us healthy, uh, the, which are set on a 24-hour um, natural cycle of, of light and darkness. And then finally, we are um, impeding the production of the hormone melatonin, which is only produced in darkness and the absence of melatonin uh, or the diminished uh, amount of, of melatonin in the bloodstream has now been linked to an increased risk in breast cancer and prostate cancer. So it's having real effect on, on our physical health uh, and even spiritual health, mental health, and certainly ecological health. Talk about the ways in which we are adjusting and adapting to this in ways that makes it even more profound because not only are we having an absence of that kind of total darkness and night, but we're now working 24-7 as well. We're certainly in, involved in a world in which globalization makes it critical that we, we be up almost all the time. Well, it's really changed uh, human life profoundly, as you say, and I think that, uh, you know, one of the first impacts I think of is, is the way that uh, um, Meal times were pushed back. That you, you know, we had we used to eat dinner before it got dark, which meant four could mean four o'clock, five o'clock at night. Now we can eat dinner whenever we want, and uh, now we have, as you said, the twenty-four hour seven, uh, the world, and and we 
You know, it comes back to um, something you said at the beginning about the invention of light, and I'm always quick to talk with folks about how wonderful artificial light is, how many benefits it does bring to us, and that I or, you know, the folks that I talk to for the book aren't saying let's not have light. You know, we're saying let's use light more intelligently, more thoughtfully, and recognize the importance of darkness. Talk about the lack of darkness, that because light has not only been brought inside our lives, it also has been brought outside, and finding darkness even externally is becoming more and more difficult. Well, it really is. Um, in fact, you know, people tend to think that uh, night at night it gets dark, but in fact it really doesn't get dark uh, as it used to, certainly. And even um, out in the countryside and uh, wild areas, rural areas, you know, there's a uh, fascinating map that um, was created about 10 or 12 years ago by a couple of tra- uh, Italian astronomers called the World Atlas of the Artificial Night Sky Brightness, where they show, in fact, that, say, on the east, uh, east of the Mississippi in the U.S., there are really no places left where you can experience a real natural night sky, a natural dark sky anymore. So it's not to say that it doesn't get dark, it's just it doesn't get dark as it used to, and the effects there are, you know, we've in many places essentially lost the night sky. We have lost the, what was for, since the beginning of time, really one of the most common experiences for the human being, that of walking out and coming face-to-face with the universe, has now become one of the most rare experiences. Will we continue to adapt to this? Obviously, this is a genie that's not going to be put back in the proverbial bottle. So talk about the ways in which you think we will continue to adapt to this. Well, I'm really optimistic about it, actually, and that's one of the reasons I love working with the issue. Uh, light pollution is something is a problem that we can so readily control. There's At this point, we're using our light in uh, way more than we need, in amounts that are way more than we need, and we're using it in a way that really ways that are really not that intelligent. And I'll give you the main example, which is that uh, most of our exterior lights are unshielded. That is, the light is sent in all directions into the sky, straight into your eyes, you know, blinding you at times. And I'm sure many people have this experience where their neighbor's light is shining right into their bedroom or their house. Um, We call that light trespass, as a matter (laughs) of fact. And all those things can be readily controlled simply by putting um, a shield on the light in the same way that we put lampshades on our bare bulbs on our our interior lights, right? We, We, our house are full of light, our houses are full of light, they're not full of bare bulbs, though, but when you walk outside, our light is full of these unshielded, essentially bare bulbs shining in all directions. How would that impact, though, in terms of creating a need if you started shielding and directing the light, a need for more electricity and more light because it wouldn't be as diffused? Mm-hmm. Well, the interesting thing that happens when you when you shield the light, you actually need to use less light. So you can uh, shield the light, you can then reduce the amount of energy you're using in that particular lamp, that particular site. So um, we can actually have much lower levels of light that are much more uh, uniformly used. So you, it's, it's much better to light a certain area in a uniform, low-level way than the way that we do it now, right now, which is essentially to kind of blast different areas as brightly as we can and hope that those lights all kind of mixed together. 
When we look at the northern parts of the planet and we look at those areas that are bathed in light for weeks and months on end, talk a little bit about that and what we can learn from that experience. Well, I think the thing that strikes me about those areas, um, as well as those areas that are uh, dark for months on end, is that that is the natural order of things and that the species have evolved that live in those areas have evolved for that natural order of things. And what we're doing with the artificial light that we're using and the way that we're using it is to uh, disrupt these natural patterns of light and dark. And I think that's the main point to be made there. Talk a little bit about what we're learning from a medical perspective about the way night work and shift work even at night has really impacted us. Sure. Well, the, the, the primary thing that I think about right away with shift work is the way that the World Health Organization now lists uh, night shift work as a probable carcinogen. And this is primarily because of the uh, disrupting of the production of the hormone melatonin in our bodies. But night shift work is also uh, very bad for us health-wise because it confuses our circadian rhythms, it disrupts our sleep. And so we're, for example, eating at times that we haven't evolved to eat. I had a, uh, a researcher from Harvard tell me that, you know, we've evolved to eat pizza at 3 p.m. and, you know, 3, 3 p.m., not 3 a.m., and that when we eat pizza or have dinner at 3 o'clock in the morning or, or what have you, our body really hasn't adjusted to that, and so we have, it has a really hard time um, with in terms of insulin, in terms of digestion, and that kind of thing. And so you see links in um, certainly laboratory, laboratory studies, but also in real life, between night shift work and obesity, uh, increased risk of diabetes, increased risk of cardiovascular disease. So all these major diseases seem to be tied to this unnatural uh, night shift work that we're having increasing numbers of people uh, do. What is it that brought your attention to this subject? How did this become something that, that you were particularly interested in? Well, for me, I was inspired by the experience I had as a child growing up in Minnesota, and we've always had a family cabin about three hours north of the Twin Cities. And when I was growing up there, it was very dark, and so I grew up with that experience, that firsthand experience of standing at the end of the dock looking out over the lake and seeing the Milky Way from one horizon to the other. I think that uh, once I finally began to learn the uh, constellations of the night sky, I very quickly started to realize what an impact light pollution has on astronomy. And from there, you start to learn about the impact that artificial light has on all these other issues. And I, I think for me, the, the thing that is most meaningful probably is the impact that it has on the environment, on ecosystems, and the way that so many species, and we're talking about 60% of invertebrates and 30% of vertebrate species are nocturnal, and many more are crepuscular, they're active at dawn and dusk, and all these species have evolved to depend on darkness. And when we flood their habitat with artificial light, that is as destructive as sending a bulldozer into that area. Do you think that there's going to be any attention paid to some of these problems that we're talking about, particularly the medical ones, the personal ones, that in fact we will begin to take steps to at least mitigate some of these impacts? I think absolutely. I think you're seeing it already. You're seeing all over the states and certainly in uh, Europe communities choosing to light 
their streets differently. Um, they're adopting lighting ordinances. They're requiring shielding. They're even turning off some of their street lights, uh, primarily so far for the energy use. But I think the awareness of some of these other issues is growing. I'll give you the prime example of this, which is the country of France now has initiated new lighting laws, nationwide lighting laws, uh, with an attention to the energy issues and the carbon emissions and the waste of light, but also with an attention to the importance of what they say the nocturnal environment, meaning the importance of darkness for the human body, for the human psyche, and for the ecology. And so uh, a countrywide set of laws that are asking or requiring shops to turn their lights off after 1 o'clock, for example, or public buildings to turn their lights off after the last employee leaves for the day. That kind of practical step that we can, that anybody can adopt, I think, as people realize the importance of darkness and the threats from light pollution, we'll start to understand that we can take these reasonable, practical steps and really address this problem. And, of course, as you point out, Las Vegas is is the ultimate example of this when we look (laughs) at uh, the night being taken away. Well, sure. Uh, Las Vegas is, you know, um, as one guy told me, the brightest pixel uh, in the world when they take uh, photographs of the Earth um, at night. Uh, the uh, Luxor beam, the beam coming out of the Luxor Casino there is the brightest pixel. And there, it's. I always say that, you know, it would be a mistake to think that there's a brighter, brighter place in the world than the Strip on Las Vegas. But I think that, you know, Certainly with my book, my, my focus was to, uh, I visited Vegas and I, I had a good experience there, but um, my, really, my focus was to help folks think about um, darkness and light and the places that they live. I think Vegas is a little bit of a, an extreme um, example of, of our use of light, um, but I want folks to think about how does my community use light and how do I, do I recognize the value of darkness for myself? Paul Bogard, the book is The End of Night, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light. Paul, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.